I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. If you have been following us, you'll know it's the Sunday we would normally be talking about Palm Sunday, Jesus entering to Jerusalem. But we are not using that portion of the lectionary today. We are going to head into one of the passion narratives, Luke 23, verses 1 through 49. And so, Alan, why don't you share with us why we are starting with this passion narrative? Well, I think one of the main reasons is simply because Luke's passion narrative is so unique. It is so different from all the others. There's there's some really unique stuff in here that you're not going to find in the other Gospels. And so, you know, last year we took a deep dive into Mark's version of, of, of the Passion narrative. And while, you know, people may wonder, well, do we really need to do it again? I, I think we'll see his perspective on the events is different from the perspective of Matthew and Mark. And in fact, if you change the names, I, you might think this was an entirely different story. It's so unique. There's a lot of unique material. There is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is. So um, tell us what what other parts besides added material that are unique about Luke. Yeah, one of the, and one thing that really surprises me is that Luke's passion narrative, unlike the other Gospels, is mostly lacking in the many citations and or allusions to the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. We saw last year with Mark's passion narrative, it was just chock full of these allusions to the Hebrew Bible. And this is quite unusual given that we've seen already yeah. the extensive influence of the Septuagint on the rest of Luke's Gospel. Um, that, along with the fact that there's a great deal of material found in Ma- Luke's passion narrative that's not found mm-hmm. anywhere else in the gospel tradition, may indicate that Luke is using a unique source here. You know, it makes me wonder, and again, I'm probably going off on a bizarre tangent, but it kind of makes me wonder if there's some assumption about um, Mark's gospel before this this connection with the Hebrew Bible before that's in people's minds. So mm-hmm. he's drawing a new picture, knowing that people are already right. in that space. I don't know. But. Well, and we saw, I think, earlier when we were dealing with um, uh, Luke 24, that there seems to be some connection between the, the ending of Luke's gospel and, and the ending of John's gospel. And so, you know, perhaps mm-hmm. they're sharing some unique materials mm-hmm. also. Of so course, who knows? Mm-hmm. And of course, Luke... I mean, we've talked about Luke and Acts as well at right. some point as well, and and this the narrative, the birth of the church, and I, I don't know. I guess my question mark is: Does that have any any relationship to this? Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, what you see is the themes that that are are established in in Luke's gospel are continued in Acts. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So you know, one of the one of the big things that you read in this is this relationship with Pilate. We get mm-hmm. more Pilate. So tell us about that. Yeah, you know, last year we saw that Mark's passion narrative really centers around the idea that Pilate was seeking to make Jesus look like a failed insurrectionist, not only by association with Barabbas, but also the whole story just seems to be designed to mock the very idea that Jesus was the king of the Jews. Mm-hmm. But we're going to see a very different story in Luke's passion narrative, really one that might even be surprising right right especially i think when you come in with this kind of mark or um when you assume when you assume sort of the 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 um stance that Pilate takes in the other gospels Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, luke's narrative is is a bit um i think surprising yeah so take us through this uh chapter 23 yeah so from the very outset of the narrative we see the uniqueness of luke's gospel in the first place we see the jewish religious leaders taking an unmistakable leading role in trying to paint Jesus out as someone who is perverting Roman authority. Mm -hmm. That's one of the main characteristics of Luke's passion narrative is that he really lays the blame for um, what happens to Jesus at the feet of the Jewish religious authorities. Mm -hmm. Um, They basically, Luke tells us that the assembly of chief priests and scribes rose as a body, in other words, as, as one, and mm-hmm. brought Jesus before Pilate. And, you know, we'll, we'll see later on that Luke's passion narrative portrays the Jewish religious leaders as unilaterally and virtually unanimously seeking to have Jesus condemned. Now, he, here, in this opening section of the chapter, only Luke gives us the content 
of their accusations. The other Gospels just say they were making accusations. Luke is the one that, that fills in the blanks here. We have found this man perverting our nation, mm-hmm. forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, again, it is, it is the Jewish religious leaders who initiate this accusation against Jesus. Pilate is playing really more of a passive role right. in, in, this, in this place. Right, which is, which is an interesting point, I think. And, mm-hmm. and I'll pull that out later with the history a little bit. But the historians pick up on this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, another and one, one thing that I did read is that you know, the, while while we may feel like they're pulling kind of a bait and switch, you know, that their real objection was religious, that he claimed to be the Messiah right, right. and was blaspheming, but they they accuse him of subversion, basically. Right. That to some extent, you know, because of their position, they were their their position was both religious and political. Perhaps right, this right. was the way they saw it that he really was subverting. Right at least their authority and thus they they there was some perhaps even legitimacy to this accusation that they brought again to Pilate. right right okay so move on how does Pilate respond the response is the same really. yeah the verbal interchange between Pilate and Jesus is identical with that in the synoptic tradition Pilate asked him are you the king of the Jews and Jesus answered you say so that's identical yet the meaning is very mm-hmm. different in Mark's gospel we saw that the charge of making himself out to be the king of the Jews was the central point in painting Jesus as a subversive insurrectionist. Here, however, after this brief exchange, Pilate decides Jesus is innocent. Mm-hmm. In verse 4, Luke says, Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no basis for an accusation against this man. Mm-hmm. And, and so then it, what we're going to see is that in Luke's passion narrative, Pilate consistently affirms that Jesus mm-hmm. is innocent, something that only John's passion narrative also indicates, which again may point to some connection between Luke and John. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I would say this is, again, one of the major themes in Luke's passion narrative, um, you know, you've got you've got the Jewish leaders who right. are who are the ones that are really the driving force behind the crucifixion of Jesus, and you've got Pilate consistently uh, saying he's innocent and and you know trying to set him free. In fact, you just ended with the question I had: Does Pilate does Pilate by not by not setting him free by does that somehow somehow suggest that he is still guilty for it? Or do you think Luke is really trying to make the point of this is not about the the Roman um, the Roman situation at all? That this is a- uh, I think I think Pilate is there mainly as someone to attest to Jesus' innocence. I don't think it clears Pilate. Of, of any particular guilt. You know, it, it's not that the Romans were were sort of neutral parties in all of this. Right. Obviously, they carry it out, right? Right, right, right. But, um, but the main emphasis that Luke, Luke is using Pilate basically as someone to attest to Jesus' innocence. Right, and I think right. that's the main thing that Luke wants to focus on is that Jesus was an innocent man. Right, um, right, which is actually important in that theology. Which, right. Right. Yeah. So yeah, Pilate, you know, Pilate, I, I, I would say, historically speaking, Pilate's concern was to keep the peace in Judea by any means. And if right. he had to execute another Jewish messianic right. pretender, it really wouldn't mean anything to Pilate. Right. I think, you know, I, 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 think, I think we tend to over, in this, maybe overemphasize, though, the innocence piece by Pilate and making him kind of a, a hero when he's really... He really doesn't care about. I think. Yeah. I think. It, 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 what is Jesus to him? Jesus' fate is here, neither here nor there, to Pilate. Yeah, yeah. What What matters to Pilate is keeping the peace in Judea, yeah. because if he doesn't keep up the peace in Judea, he's got to answer to Rome. Exactly, exactly. And so I, I do think that, I do think that's clear here. I think. Um, yeah, I do think that's but clear I, here. I think it's fascinating, though, that Luke, Luke's passion narrative consistently portrays yeah. Pilate as insisting that Jesus is innocent. Yeah, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. but that's, a, I think that's an important, probably an important place for, for Luke to point that out, and, yep. and, you know. Yep. So, okay, well, let's move on. Then what happens in the next scene? Well, the whole next scene in Luke's passion narrative is the interview with Herod. And again, it is only found in 
Luke's gospel and the whole gospel tradition. You don't you don't have this whole interview anywhere else, and I think you know we've seen so many quote unquote passion plays that that we just assume all of this is mm-hmm. is in all the gospels, but this is unique to Luke. And remind you, mind everyone, this is Herod Antipas again, right? And that's important. I I think just when we hear Herod, our minds go back to Christmas story, and then no, I would right. hate to see someone preach the wrong person. Right. This is Herod um, Antipas, the client king of, yes, of Galilee. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Luke tells us that this plea that that displeased Herod because he had heard about Jesus and was hoping to see him perform some sign. And you know, we recently mentioned that Herod plays a very small role in Luke's gospel, especially with reference to the execution of John the Baptist. But it is in con- that connection that he comes up earlier in Luke. Uh, Herod was perplexed by the things that he heard about Jesus and tried to see him in Luke nine, and perhaps because he was afraid that John had come back to life and thus might pose a threat to him. Maybe it was just pure curiosity. I don't know. Our our reformers thought that he just wanted to be entertained, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, it is. But one interesting detail is that Luke tells us even Herod with his soldiers Mm -hmm. treated him with contempt and mocked him. You know, Pilate doesn't dirty his hands with that kind of work. But Herod Herod joins in the fun, as it were. Right, right. Which is, I, I think, really not doesn't speak well of Herod. <laughs> well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Okay, keep keep going here. Yeah. Um now one so then uh, Luke also adds that same day Herod and Pilate became friends with each mm. other. Before this, they had been enemies. <clears throat> and I think this is interesting because we find the follow-up in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28, where the early church is praying for boldness in the face of the opposition. And they, they cite the fact that the kings of the earth had gathered uh, against Jesus, citing Psalm right. 2, 1 through 2. And they make the, the association between Herod and Pilate as being responsible for Jesus' death, See, which is interesting that both Herod and Pilate right. are responsible for so Jesus' death. So this is kind of where the, going back to the question I had initially, where we tend to give Herod this kind of, well, he really wasn't that bad of a guy because he tries to he tries to exonerate Jesus, and yet it, it's kind of interesting because he's, he's still kind of a bad guy. He, comes yes. pal, he pals around with Herod now. Well, I mean, none of, the, none of the Roman figures in this uh, is, is, is innocent right. by any means. That, yeah. yeah, yes. So now, again, the following scene is only found in Luke's gospel. When Jesus returned to Pilate, he summoned the chief priests, the leaders, and the people. And only here the people are explicitly named. Mm. Later, they will be distinguished from the leaders. And Pilate said to them, you brought me this man as one who was perverting the people. And here I have examined him in your presence, and I have found not found this man guilty of any charges against mm-hmm. him. Neither has Herod, for uh-huh. he has sent him back to us. Indeed, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will have him flogged and release him. And so perhaps this is maybe the strongest declaration of Jesus' innocence on Pilate's part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet, here they are, the right. bad guys. So right. it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. yet he's still going to offer to have him flogged to, to satisfy the uh, crowd. Yes, exactly. Right. All right, so how does how does uh, Luke respond to this? Well, in response, Luke says that they all shouted together, and, and we don't know who they is, but it sounds like it's the, the chief priest, the leaders, and the people. They what, all shouted yeah. together, uh, away with this fellow, release Barabbas for us. And here, Luke's passion narrative syncs with the other mm-hmm. synoptic gospels. But ironically, we're not really given any information as to why the group asked for Barabbas, as we are in mm-hmm. uh, Mark, for example, gives us some some background information on Barabbas. Now, we are told that this was a man who'd been put in prison for an insurrection that had taken place in the city and for murder, which to me in this case makes the crowd of the chief priests, the leaders, and the people look guilty by asking for a murderer instead of a man who has been found by the authorities to be innocent. Mm -hmm. So this is very different from Mark's narrative. So, um, going on how does Luke what does Luke do with Pilate so Luke tells us that Pilate wanted to release Jesus and addresses the crowd again but in response the crowd kept shouting crucify him crucify him and so then Luke points out that Pilate declares Jesus innocence a third time 
Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no ground for the sentence of death. I will therefore have him flogged and then release him. That's Mm -hmm. verse 22. Mm -hmm. And again, only Luke narrates the story of Jesus' passion from the perspective that Pilate so consistently declared him to be innocent. That's only in Luke's gospel. In the end, however, Luke tells us that they kept urgently demanding with loud shouts that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Right, So almost... Pilate is bowing to the pressure of the crowd here. Yes, yes. He's clearly scared of them, and he's clearly wanting to do anything to keep them happy Mm -hmm. so that eyes don't go on him. So it, it makes him look very weak. Yes, it does, definitely. And so... Their voices prevailed, and Pilate released Barabbas, who is again described as the one who had been put in prison for insurrection and murder, and Pilate handed Jesus over as they wished. Mm -hmm. Again, I think it's important to note, their voices prevailed, and he handed Jesus over as they wished. Right. I think this plays into the theme that Luke wants to emphasize, that this was the doing, this was the responsibility of the Jewish religious leaders at the very least. Right. Yeah. So Luke seems intent on making it clear that the death of Jesus took place at the instigation of the Jewish religious leaders. Mm -hmm. Now, in Acts, we will see the apostles bringing this up in response to the Jewish religious leaders when they're called to account for their actions Mm -hmm. in proclaiming the gospel. All right. So, next scene, what happens now? Yeah, um, you know, this is the next scene is, is, the, is the scene of the crucifixion. And except for the notice that Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry Jesus' cross, this next section is also completely unique in Luke's gospel. Uh, here it seems that Luke wants to introduce a distinction between mm-hmm. the chief priest and the leaders, uh, as well as the crowd that followed them, and a great number of the people who here followed Jesus and were grieving his fate. Yeah, yeah. So, so we see there's a distinction between uh, the chief priest and the leaders and those who perhaps were influenced by them, and then a great number of the people here who followed Jesus and were grieving his fate. And again, only Luke tells us that among them were women who were beating their breasts and wailing for him Mm -hmm. in verse 27. And of course, while Jesus is moved by their grief, his response is really kind of an ominous reminiscence of his prediction regarding the destruction Mm -hmm. of Jerusalem, uh, which goes back to Luke 21. Uh, Here he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your Mm -hmm. children, for the days are surely coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And he had said something similar to that in connection with his prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem in Luke chapter 21. Yeah. Yeah, And so Jesus' warning then at the end of this section, if they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry, seemed to suggest that this is only the beginning of the conflagration that's going to come upon the Jewish people. So here's what's going through my mind in all of this. A couple of things. One, the crowd that is calling out to crucify, are those people now feeling badly for their doing? Are these different people? It's, you know, it's it's not made clear. It's left ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Um some, you know, there may be some notion that some of the folks were influenced by the Jewish religious leaders and then regretted it. Right. Uh, there may be some notion here that that there were there was a part of the crowd that was influenced by the Jewish religious leaders, but then there was uh, another part of the crowd that was not, and mm-hmm. perhaps even we might say the majority of the Jewish people. As we as 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 the story goes on, things changed right. dramatically. Yes, you know that that you have you have the crowd that's it's not really specified exactly who's crying out crucify him. It's just an ambiguous they. Right, right. But but now as as things progress and we have have um, the scenes of Jesus at the cross, right. we're going to see that the people are distinguished from the religious leaders, mm-hmm. and. Then- and, and the people respond differently. I also am finding this interesting that here now we have this reference to the women. I, I, I wonder too, uh, it makes me wonder were there women in the original crowd or are the women here now, does this somehow reflect that most women were not in that same I, In I that, mean, original, in that crowd original crowd that was crowd. crying for yeah. his death, right. Yeah, yeah. It, it's an interesting it's, it's, it's left really kind of almost frustratingly ambiguous. It is. Yeah. Well, and that knowing that women are there at the end, I think this mm-hmm. is very interesting and that women are there um, 
uh, at the resurrection as well. There's some interesting ties with women in this. And mm-hmm. you know, again, I'm going for some kind of feminist stuff here, but um, I'll let you. Well, <laughs> hey, you know, when they're particularly brought up, that you wonder if that that they are really acting as true followers mm-hmm. in a way where others are willing to write them off. I don't know. You know, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that the women in this place are 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 responding out of faith. I think I think Jesus was known as a teacher and mm-hmm. and someone who went about doing good in general. And I think we see this as more their their grief that they know what's going to happen to him. Crucifixion was something that they knew about. Yeah, you know, it was yeah. a, it was something they had experienced, and so uh, they're grieving for Jesus. Does that mean that they were also responding out of faith? I don't know. It's not really. It, it's Luke doesn't. Luke too. doesn't. Yeah, Luke leaves that op- open ended. He doesn't really draw the connection. Yeah. yeah. All right. So what happens now? Well, and also it's here in this connection that only that one of that one of the only two citations from the Hebrew Bible in Luke's passion narrative occurs. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, "Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us." This is Luke twenty three thirty, mm-hmm. and he's citing uh, Hosea ten eight. And the citation is a version of the Septuagint, but the actions of the mountains and the hills are reversed. Huh. Um, the and the other the second citation is a little later on when um, when uh, Luke talks cites quotes from uh, Psalm twenty two that they divided they they divided my garments among them right and so those are the only two citations from the Hebrew Bible in Luke's Passion narrative which is interesting yeah, it yeah. is interesting and so this brings us then to the crucifixion scene two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him when they came to the place that is called the skull. They crucified Jesus there with criminals, one on his right and one on his left. That's verses 32 and 33. Mm -hmm. And I think it's significant here that Luke says that Jesus was crucified with two criminals. And the word is kakorgoi, Mm -hmm. literally evildoers, rather than bandits, which we saw last year in in Mark and and Mm -hmm. it's also in in Matthew, leistas, which can mean, it can mean robbers, but most New Testament scholars would, would say that in light of some 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 of what we see in Josephus, that it's probably more more likely to be translated as insurrectionists, and so in contrast with the narrative in Mark, where everything that happens appears to be a Roman effort to discredit Jesus as a failed insurrectionist, in Luke's narrative, Jesus is consistently portrayed as an innocent man wrongfully executed with wrongdoers, basically. So what is the narrative then of Jesus on the cross? Because that is different in a different gospel. It is indeed. And in Luke's narrative, Jesus only says three things from the cross. And I want to again say there is no account of the seven last words of Jesus. You know, that's just church tradition. Uh, well, basically, they have taken these seven sayings and from the, from the four gospels right. and they've sort of smashed them together in a harmony but there is no there is no gospel account that has seven seven last words of jesus you know in in luke's gospel jesus only says three things from the cross one of them occurs here in verse 34 then jesus said father forgive them for they do not know what they're doing Mm -hmm. and if you're following along in your new rsv you you notice that there are double brackets around that verse and that is a way that most english translations indicate that this verse is probably not original to Luke's gospel. Um, and now, you know, we'd say the saying seems entirely consistent with what Jesus would have said. And, you know, we can point to the fact that it also finds an echo in Stephen's last words at his stoning in Acts 760. The manuscript evidence is decidedly against it being an original part of Luke's passion narrative. This verse is missing in... Um, P75 and Vaticanus, which are two of the earliest and best witnesses to Luke's gospel, as well as in Codex Beza. Um, and, and the combination of, uh, this is a combination of two different traditions of the textual, mm. the gospel tradition. So the fact that it's in two different traditions also kind of strengthens that 
uh, evidence. It's found in the original text of Sinaiticus, which which normally lines up with with Vaticanus. Uh-huh. Um, but the first corrector marks this passage as suspect. Wow. So, and, and it's also found in the majority of later manuscripts. Bruce Metzger's textual commentary says, the Logion, though probably not a part of the original gospel of Luke, bears self-evident tokens of its dominical origin. In other words, it sounds a lot like what Jesus right. would say. And was retained within double brackets in its traditional place where it had been incorporated by unknown copyists relatively early in the tra- transmission of the third gospel. I think that is, I think that is uh, textual critical doublespeak for, for saying, because this has always been printed in the Bible, we're going to leave it in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, it, yeah, and I guess to some extent... I mean, it seems to ring true. And what the Christian church is, it developed, kind of assumed it was in there. Mm -hmm. So, And it seems to ring true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I I don't have any problem with with including it, uh, but I think it is important to use the double brackets to indicate that this really probably was not an original part of Luke's Mm -hmm. gospel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what follows then is the scene where Jesus is mocked by those who are witnessing the crucifixion. And I find it interesting that Luke tells us that the people stood by watching. Yeah. While he says that the leaders and the soldiers mocked him by calling on him to save himself. Now, you know, this is important because, again, we, we see this distinction between the people mm-hmm. and the leaders. Mm-hmm. The people stood by watching. While it was the leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, and the Roman soldiers who mocked him. Um, okay, so we have the next scene. So again, the next scene is found only in Luke's passion narrative. I'm, I feel like I'm sounding like a broken record here. <laughs> the dialogue between Jesus and the two criminals. And note, neither of them, them is thought, called a thief. Although we have the, the church tradition about the thief on the cross who appeals to Jesus, um, that designation comes from the translation of Lestace in Matthew 27, 38, and Mark 15, 27 as thieves in the King James and other versions. But there's no translation in the English Bible that translates the criminals as thieves in, in Luke's gospel. So again, we, that kind of comes from mashing up of the two different gospel traditions to some extent. So the first criminal kept deriding him, and the verb is the verb is blasphemeo, and, and this is the verb used of the derision by the passers-by in Mark fourteen twenty-nine. I find it interesting that Luke reserves that word for the criminal on the cross who is deriding him mm-hmm. and calling for Jesus to save himself, mm-hmm. save yourself and us. The other criminal then rebuked the first and also notes that although they were getting what they what we deserve for our deeds— he says, this man has done nothing wrong. And so the criminal, the second criminal becomes a second witness in Luke's passion narrative to Jesus' innocence. And again, I think this is, this is sort of the main theme in Luke's passion narrative is to demonstrate Jesus' innocence. So then he then asked Jesus to remember me, remember me when you come into your kingdom, to which Jesus replies, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, the word paradise is used in parallel with the kingdom here, which I find interesting. But elsewhere, paradise, uh, the Greek word paradisos, refer, can refer to the Garden of Eden or to heaven, so to speak, as a place of blessedness. And then we move on to the yep. final scene. And so then in the final scene, in Jesus' death, shares some details with the other synoptic gospels. But once again, it bears Luke's unique stamp. Here, Jesus breathes his last with a cry not of anguish, but of trust. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And this is Luke 23, 46, and he's citing Psalm 31, 5. Mm -hmm. And I think this is also consistent with Luke's narrative of Jesus as an innocent man. He dies with the cry of righteous Mm -hmm. faith on his lips. Mm -hmm. Jesus dies the faithful, obedient one who yes. has fulfilled God's commission yes. to carry out the work of the servant of the Lord and to carry out the work of, of, of the kingdom of God. In, and Jesus has done this consistently through his faith in God. And so it, it is, makes perfect sense that in Luke's gospel, Jesus dies with this cry of faith. And this is, this is very different than Mark. Yes, in you Mark, know. it's it's my God, my God, yeah. why have you forsaken me? So what? It, and and, and uh, 
a very just it, it gives you a very different sense. It has such a confident feel about mm. it, whereas the other one at has least, this kind of eerie. Um, but it, it it reflects what each gospel is trying yes, to do, yes, right? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And again, I think the emphasis here is that that Jesus is determined to fulfill his task, you know, in serving God um, through his faithfulness to God and empowered right. by his faith in God. Right, right. So, so then the centurion remarks upon his death that Luke said, as Luke tells us, that certainly this man was innocent. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, you've got Pilate, you've got the second criminal who turned mm-hmm. to Jesus, and now you've got the Roman, overse- the Roman centurion who's probably overseeing the crucifixion, all three bearing witness to Jesus' innocence in Luke's passion narrative. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That innocence, I guess, becomes really important for our reformers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it becomes really, in fact, they pull out this more that Luke is different than maybe in many other places they do in the scripture because this is so important, in particular for reformed theology. Yeah. So we'll talk yeah. about that in a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So then finally, Luke remarks that when all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. Now, notice mm-hmm. at the conclusion of Luke's passion narrative, all the crowds who had gathered there for the spectacle returned home grieving. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, are there some people who've had a change of heart? Maybe right. they got caught up in the in the you, you know in the, in the in the emotional uh, influence of the crowd under the influence of the religious leaders calling for for Pilate to crucify Jesus, and now that it's happened, maybe they've had a change of heart. But I would say certainly there's probably a fair share of these folks who never wanted to see Jesus crucified in the first right. place. Right. Right. Yeah. I agree. So uh, again, this this distinguishes the people from the Jewish religious leaders uh, and those elements in the crowd, perhaps that followed them in calling for Jesus to be crucified. Mm -hmm. So finally, Luke says that all his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching Mm -hmm. these things. And again, this is unique because in Luke's gospel, the 12 don't flee from the cross. Uh, Matthew and Mark, they're nowhere to be found, right? right? But, but all Jesus acquaintances watch at a distance um, and they, here Luke includes the women, although he doesn't name them right. as Mark does. Right, he doesn't. Um, but what an interesting, um, kind of what an interesting piece too, this, this died. It's like everybody here is showing their human weakness. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the crowd who's now weeping, whether they were part of the crowd cheering before, right. um, the, the disciples who... I mean, before they're gone, now they're kind of like living in this tragedy. They're uh, there, but they're but they're at a distance. Right, yeah. right. So what? It, and I think that's important for what happens in Acts too. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a foreshadowing. Yes, I think so too. too. Well, and because you know, one of the things that that one commentator pointed out is, you know, in Acts, the vast majority of of or perhaps a big a, a large part of this crowd maybe are, are going to convert. Right. <laughs> to yeah, Christian faith. Absolutely. And so, you know, um, uh, Luke kind of exonerates the people uh, yeah. at the in, uh, at the cross to yeah, some extent. Yeah, I, I think so. I yeah. think so. Well, we will come back in just a minute and talk about the reformers. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and as usual, uh, Christy's going to show us some of the unique ways that the reformers uh, responded to this passage. So, tell us what you found, Christy. Sure. Um, I think today, unlike um, sometimes, I'm kind of going through the the narrative a little bit. I didn't talk about all the points they make because I don't find all of them that important for us. But there were some that were there were some that were good. Now, of course, you have to remember that they're still collapsing the narrative. Although, I will say, they did notice those differences in Luke, and they did specifically talk about those differences. So, um, and so while they're able to kind of mold them into the rest, it's like they pulling them out as being explaining points that they find really important. So, hmm. what is what an interesting, That's interesting yeah, yeah, what an interesting space. Um, it is in, it's interesting to see what they emphasize. So they talk quite a lot about Pilate. 
And they recognize that Pilate does not actually see Jesus as guilty. Um, But they do think that Pilate felt threatened or perhaps shamed um, by the by the Jewish crowd, sure. Um, and this is where they specifically draw out in the story that Luke talks about the accusation against Jesus that he was quote, preserving our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So that same piece that we pointed out earlier, they they point out as well. Um, so. This is not new on Alan's point. That this is becoming that this had come through the kind of um, anal, anal, analytical tradition that they they noticed this. Um, according to Calvin and other reformers, um, this was one way to really get under Pilate's skin. <laughs> <laughs> and Pilate's only goal was, in their opinion, to keep the peace. Um, but the threat of insurrection was the one thing that would truly anger him. So you've got that interesting. Um, insurrection piece coming back in that we the, we heard with Mark, but yet um, um, they they go further than that because they recognize that he's not the one that's pushing for it, right? Sure. Yeah. Well, and you know, the interesting thing is at times Pilate could be brutal and cruel mm-hmm. when it came yes. to putting down any kind of insurrection. Yes. And and we, we know this from Josephus. Yes. And, and, and the reformers... Red, we've talked about Josephus before, and they know that about yeah. Pilate. They talk about that here. I think, I think though, it's one thing, you know, some of the more brutal things he did were, were not necessarily in Jerusalem. There was, there was one where he, where he crucified a bunch, of, a bunch of insurrectionists. But, you know, to actually attack the Jewish religious establishment and the leaders themselves, right. that would not have been something that, that would not have gone over well. And I think exactly. Pilate knew that. Well, as I said, he's a little bit he's threatened, you know, yeah. and he's a little bit scared of that, which is sometimes hard when you think he represents Rome, mm-hmm. but he's there to do a job and... If he keep can't him, keep the peace, he's got to go back to Rome and answer for it. Exactly. Yeah. So moving on, Calvin takes this into context of his day. So this is really interesting. Um, and notes that, that the true kingdom of God is actually a threat to the kings mm. and magistrates of his time. Mm. So in other words, he's saying, look, uh, following Christ um, back in that time, um, th- they was threatened they threatened the the establishment. Same true with his time. Huh. So it was a direct criticism against the source of power. Um, and then we and then moving on then into Calvin's theology. There's that whole emphasis on the body of Christ, and it becomes the power base for Calvin instead of a king, mm. right? And so there are many uh, scholars who trace. Calvin's um, concept of, of course, the body of Christ then moves its way into polity, which then impacts um, American government, sure, for example. Sure, representative government. Exactly. Yeah. So you get this this pattern that, that, that moves, it kind of pushes new ideas about governance. Um, and this idea is not developed thoroughly here, but I think Calvin sees the conflict between secular rulers and the kingdom of God um, as being the conflict with one another both then and in his time. Sure. And it is a huge issue in the church that will eventually lead to modern representative government. And I would say, you know, I would say, in fact, <laughs> even with representative government, God's kingdom <laughs> subverts <laughs> all, for all, claims of, all human claims of power. Exactly. Exactly. But it's that interesting space, right? If you are chosen and if you have, and if you are indeed responding to Christ mm-hmm. through the faith that you have, then you indeed can set up a government that is true and just. This is very interesting stuff that goes on. You want to say, though, you want to, you want to remind Calvin about his own concept of total depravity, well, right? Because, you know. Right. I mean, it's a Because it's never right? going to be, it's never going to live up to that well, idea. And I don't think he would, I think he would say that, right? Yeah. But I think that's part of the loop he gets caught in, right? Uh, is right. Is that total depravity, but if you are relying on God and then, and you get that back and forth, I mean, it's, it's theology in its reality towards how does it carry out? How does that carry out into kind of the practical world? And and they they conflict with each other. Well, it's the ideal versus the real, right? right? Ideally, he would think that, that if you've got people who are, are Christians uh, in the government, that they would be governing in a, in a just way. But there are still humans who are fallen and sinful. Well, and we see that <laughs> conflict in Luther too. But Luther tends to um, 
Luther tends to have more of a, a dualistic view mm. of it. You know, we have to have government because there's all these people that aren't going to follow it properly. So it, it it's it's kind of separate then from what would be the kind of the Augustinian mm-hmm. views. Um, the power the, of the keys versus the power of yeah, the sword. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So anyway, they deal with some of these interesting concepts. Um, so moving on... Um, then there's Herod. And so they, they too treat this Herod as interesting. And they notice that Herod is only talked about in Luke. Um, although they assume that the others <laughs> would have talked about Herod, right? Because <laughs> it's all put together. But um, th- their opinion on Herod was that Her- Herod wanted Jesus to perform a sign, and he wouldn't. And they agreed that he just wanted Jesus to entertain him. Um, and that, uh, his interest in him was not true faith. And therefore Jesus would only perform these kinds of signs from people that actually believed. Um, and in a sense, I think Herod was testing Jesus. Um, even though Herod mocked Jesus, he did not send him to death. Right. And what we learn is that neither Pilate nor Herod had any use for Jesus. You know, and I mentioned that earlier, Yeah. according to the reformers, um, Jesus was simply worthless to them. Um, but Herod's encounter with Jesus does the same as the Pilate example. It reflects Jesus' freedom to die. The reformers are pushing that both of these say that Jesus is innocent, which mm-hmm. I think is interesting. The emphasis on Christ's freedom, I think, is part of that old theological discussion of the, of the nature of Christ, the person of Christ. And in Reformed theology, it's really important that Christ took his responsibility upon himself, that he had the freedom to die, um, that Jesus, God incarnate, chose to die for our sins, and that is expressed expressed here and this mm. really becomes a big part of our mm-hmm. our reformed theology mm-hmm. christ did not go to his death constrained by external forces but by his own free will that he might fulfill his father's commandment yeah well and you know actually at that point i would i would say that's probably not far from from what i was trying to express you know i think at that's the exactly end, you know, what you were trying to jesus, say jesus jesus fulfilling his his exactly. uh, role uh, uh, in in bringing the kingdom by right. by being right. faithful to god and and empowered by his faith in yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of that interesting space. It's, it's that his choice. Hum- yeah, it's that, that choice that's there. It's that fully human and fully God that is central for this to be played out right. That mm-hmm. it's it, that, that it's not Jesus that's somehow separated from his humanity right, right. and just God. Right. And it, it's not, not vice versa, the, the human Jesus separated from God. It's both. And mm-hmm. that's a really big, important theological point for our reformers. Mm. So here this kind of comes out of this whole thing. Right. And moving on, then it is interesting that Herod and Pilate are reconciled and how Calvin responds to it. <laughs> so this whole thing of they all of a sudden now are, are friends, our, friends right? our buddies, right? Um, and Calvin talks up, picks up on this, talking about how Pilate and Herod are both wicked. And he, he says, quote, It is probably that because both of these men were driven by their ambition, they came into some conflict over sovereignty. But whatever was the origin of their disagreement, neither would have neither would have given even the smallest place to the other concerning his authority in worldly matters. However, because Christ is brought to nothing, Pilate easily hands him over to Herod, and Herod, in his turn, sends it back to Pilate. (laughs) So on this thing, they can agree. They can agree. Exactly. (laughs) Interesting, right? Okay. So then Calvin goes on to show that this is played out in his contemporary way. So again, we have the the analysis, and then we have this kind of application. And so it is as if Pilate and Herod represent all who oppose the true church, right? Okay. Indeed, hatred of piety often leads to mutual reconciliation <laughs> amongst the wicked. And again, this, this all fits into this attempt to carry out what this kind of um, um, utopia that Geneva would sure. be, right? Sure, sure. So, um, or this theocracy. So when we are reconciled by God, then we behave in ways to reconcile ourselves towards one another. So here's this kind of side note, Cal- becomes central Calvin's thought as to why and how we come to be the body of Christ. 
This does not sound foreign to our Presbyterian ears, but it is a big deal within the tradition of the church, which does not have the sense of reciprocity built into it. Mm. It really emphasizes the communal nature of the church. And, you know, again, I, I, I think, you know, that's the ideal of the church. We all know that the reality of the church is a bit different. <laughs> and Calvin would say that too. Yeah. Well, oddly enough, although... You know, there's so many people that saw Geneva, saw how it how it functioned and wanted to create other Genevas mm-hmm. everywhere they went, right? Yeah. Because they saw well, what happens if people really are living, you know, in, into, you know, recognizing their reliance on God and then living into their, their lives as saints and falling, which happened there pretty well. And it really was quite a city. Now... Some of us looking in say, but I would miss all the fun stuff I like to do. But again, it was a different, kind of a different ethos, right? It, they, didn't, they didn't feel like they were missing out on things because they, they had bought into the, the system, I guess. Sure. Right? Well, and, but at the same time, I would, I would say as highly as, as the ideals were fulfilled in Geneva, you know, I'm sure if we had been there and we're looking with a critical modern eye, we could have seen plenty of sure fallenness. Oh, I'm sure we could have, right? Right. Yeah. Well, and then you even in the application of of the of you know the the wonderful things they were doing, right? Right. I know. I know. Very. I keep thinking of all the judgment that was undoubtedly going mm-hmm. on if you didn't conform to a certain right. way right. oh well someone will judge you if you behave this way or that way and so yeah what it, it's just this interesting anyway it's an interesting thing that's to the process. ideal and the reality right yeah right yeah. um and and i mentioned this before luther's always had plenty ideals too about how one would properly behave you know how one would properly fall into belief and and it didn't happen that way for in his world either mm-hmm. you know um, so the narrative, back to our narrative, takes us back to Pilate. And again, Calvin has this interesting response. As he said, Pilate, flo- Pilate flogs Jesus because this is what sinful worldly people do. But then he goes further to say that the flogging is shameful, that had Jesus experienced the flogging without dying on the cross, then it would be nothing more than living into the injustice. Mm. Um, but by dying on the cross, Christ conquered all. Um, it ties back to the beginning with the imperative for Jesus yeah. to die on the cross without guilt. So you couldn't, <laughs> Jesus couldn't have just been flogged. I mean, the story had to come to its completion sure. in his death. So um, now, one of the asides, I could have spent the entire day on this, um, but I thought I should bring it up was, as we're moving into this part of, of Christ's death, is who killed Christ? Mm-hmm. And um, this is... This is a huge historical discussion um, about really anti-Semitism that mm-hmm. we can talk about. And I didn't want to spend too much time on, on it here, but I did want to mention it. Um, and this, of course, I mean, we can draw anti-Semitism up, obviously, through the, you know, the early, early, early church. But it becomes really, really big in the high Middle Ages um, in this, what we call this age of persecution. Um, and, and that falls in with... What'll eventually be um, things like the Crusades, mm-hmm. um, and then as Crusaders begin with kind of being supportive of Jews, then it turns to be into this kind of intolerance towards Jews along with Muslims, and then they begin this process of kicking Jews out of Europe. So this begins in, I believe, the 11th century, and it comes to its completion, frankly, in the uh, um, in the 15th century. So they're basically kicked out, except for free cities. Um, and uh, anyway, this had be then so in, within a Reformation period, there there were some Jewish folks around in the free cities, mm-hmm. um, but there was skepticism about them, and they were limited from the types of well, trades. Pro- they could be in. It sounds like given given that that long of a tradition of anti-Semitism, I'm sure there was a, there were a lot of lingering uh, notions about that in the in the culture. Absolutely, there's all kinds of things that they accused Jews of doing. A lot of blame mm-hmm. put on them, but. For us here, there this this came down to the Jews killed Christ, mm-hmm. and so that 
that's a huge part of, of the anti-Semitism piece that comes in. Is, is they, they didn't blame Pilate. They blamed the Jews for doing it. And um, I think that's coming to some modern-day discussions as well. Sure. Um, and it was the Jews who asked for Barabbas rather than Christ to be released. And um, as I said, one of the main reasons that anti-Semitism really continued to rage during the Reformation. Mm. Yeah. Um, now... Before I move on to my next point, I do want to say there were some kind of progressive folks. Um, there was a kind of a, a, a renaissance of Jewish studies um, during the Reformation. So they were they were translating and um, mm -hmm. Old Testament and and the, uh, also there was um, from from the Hebrew right right. right. Um, there was also. Um, um, some some kind of renewed interest in in Jewish scholarship, uh, so there were some oh, more yeah, progressive I mean, they, voices. The only place they could learn Hebrew was from Jewish scholars. Mm -hmm. So there were some more progressive voices. This mm -hmm. isn't like a, a monolithic anti-Semitism, but um, it was still it was still very prevalent then. And again, it, it fell back to the scripture. So I want to kind of yeah. want put it in there. All right, then we move to the crucifixion itself. And the reformers like to talk about Simon of Simon. Um, Melanchthon claimed that Jesus, being a peacemaker, was likely not strong enough to carry his own cross. <laughs> so sad. I, I think of I think of <laughs> if he grew up as a carpenter. I mean, but he wasn't like the robbers, and wasn't like the real bad guys. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. But he was like a lamb headed to the sacrifice. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh my. Do you like that? That's sad. <laughs> um, and then Bullinger calls Simon's carrying the cross a burden that, that he did not want. Simon did not want it. As he said, he bears the image of all human flesh, which never submits itself willingly to the cross of Christ, but continually strives against it. Poor guy. I mean, all he did was carry Christ's cross. Why does he get blamed I like know. this? And, you know, I, always, <laughs> I have to say this is interesting because I always kind of, I viewed him as a, as a saint, you know, and, well, yeah. and, 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 and someone that did this out of love. And here it's this, he didn't want to do it as he was made to do it. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting read on this. Um, mm. But it is interesting as it reflects the ongoing sinfulness of man, total depravity, if you will. And I find this kind of interesting as a Reformed tradition looks more heavily on the sacrifice and the sin and Luther on the grace and freedom. Mm. Um, and these are in both traditions, but you can see how they play out in the denominational differences. Um, as Luther says, God wants us to be happy, to glorify God and to give him thanks for his grace. And he's dying on the cross. But Calvin is much much more dour mm -hmm. so you get very different personalities if you will coming out of of the uh, of the of the crucifixion well, yeah they it sounds like they read they read the crucifixion in different ways based on you know their their personal assumptions yeah yeah, yeah. um the reformers do make an interesting comparison between the injustice and pain of christ's death against christ's gentleness and mercy even while on the cross um, there's some division in opinion, however, about whether the death itself was shameful. The Reformed tradition tends to emphasize the shamefulness of death on the cross, a murderer's death. But Lutheran's death emphasize that Christ exchanged his death with the glorious body of the immortal. It seems like they almost are skipping over the, mm -hmm. the death itself. Going straight to the resurrected you know, Christ. And it yeah. reminds me of my senior pastor who, whenever we do the... Um, 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 the Lord's Supper. He always makes this point to say, um, um, Jesus died, and he really died, mm -hmm. just to emphasize that piece of it, not to sure. skip over. Sure. Um, so I think it's interesting. Um, it seems like the Reformed tradition folks are letting us grieve and live into the dirtiness of Christ's death, the blood, and I think we are seeing that total depravity playing itself out in the mm. analysis. So, mm. you know, as we're, as, as Alan was pointing out earlier, th this, this emphasis on total depravity, but in accepting it, this kind of idealized world mm -hmm. that they're trying to form. And it's such an interesting space. It's isn't an interesting it? tension. Yeah. Uh huh. And then ultimately um, the last piece I wanted to point out is they do make a big deal about the, the second thief um, who, ki who was killed alongside Jesus. Um, they treat it as foreshadowing um, 
the risen Christ. They make a bigger deal about it than maybe we would. This text itself is a Christianizing sermon and a funeral sermon, and a sermon at a consecration, and a sermon at the canonization of himself <laughs> who makes it, is, is one of the quotes I pulled out. But more than this, it is an example of God's grace. Surely. And it is not why what this guy did, but that he was saved by God's grace at the last moments. Surely, surely. So that's what I have for you. Okay, thanks, thanks. Christy. Hi, everybody. We're back. And uh, Ellen and I thought we would um, continue talking about... Um, the read of this still today that leads some groups to anti-Semitism within it. And I think it's important for us to kind of talk about the biblical tradition and the and our modern day maybe understanding of this and perhaps debunk some of the history that has led to this as well. So, Alan, why don't you start? Yeah, you know, um, there's no escaping the fact that all four Gospels indicate that the Jewish religious leaders, and to some extent perhaps some of the Jewish people, were responsible for calling for Jesus to be crucified. This is something that is consistent in, in the gospel tradition. And Luke is going to follow up with, with you know, his passion narrative in the book of Acts. The, the apostles, when they're called on the carpet by the religious leaders, um, they're going to consistently say, you know, God raised up this Jesus whom you crucified, <laughs> this mm -hmm. Jesus whom you killed, mm -hmm. um, even though Pilate had decided to release him, um, you know, God brought him back to life just to, to, to vindicate right, him and demonstrate right. that he truly was who he said he was. And so, I mean, this is part of the New Testament tradition. It is. It is. Um, I think, and, and so a lot of, there are a lot of New Testament scholars, biblical scholars these days, who are, are like engaged in trying to somehow, um, you know, unwrap Jesus' crucifixion from that part of the tradition right. because they see that as, as by definition, anti-Semitic. Right, right. And, and I, I think it's important to distinguish between the New Testament account of the Jewish leaders' responsibility and the role they played in Jesus' death and the use that was made by various generations in the church including and up to you know in in, in the the extreme anti-semitism in in right. Europe in in the the middle middle ages um, you know when when basically um, the Jewish people were were slandered as Christ killers mm -hmm. well I mean we, we saw in Luke's passion narrative Luke is trying to make a distinction between the leaders and those right. who were yes, grieving yes, yes, over what yes, happened. Yes. So, you know, even even in Luke's gospel, it's not everyone right, that right. is responsible. Well, you know, as I always think about this, in my view, too, is the Romans still have some guilt in this. And I realize oh, this was the place where Romans were, but it was only the Roman government that could carry out crucifixion. Absolutely. And I'm sorry, you're there watching. It's Roman soldiers carrying it out. Yep. So... There is no, every, to me, it's such a, it's talk about humanity rather than a specific group. Right. Um, and so I guess I've always kind of looked more at the, you know, obviously Pilate ultimately does send him out to be crucified. Right. Um, and um, so I guess uh, I've never lo just looked at it as just a Jewish thing, but I realize mm. that the, our history has um at times, and it's an excuse. It really becomes an excuse. It's a scapegoat reason, sure. right? Um, yeah the the way the way the church has used this was just to scapegoat the Jews. Absolutely. And and the way some you know um, Nazis and neo Nazis still do. I mean, it's it's Absolutely. just they're using them as a scapegoat. Absolutely. And um, you know, the more then that people are isolated, the more excuses come up to. Mm -hmm. Oh well, they are separate from us, so they're they're different from us, so they must be doing these things. And we just this this is just various types of xenophobia that we continue to carry out. I mean, it's kind of a human nature. It's a it's kind of a gross side of human nature, you know. Well, and you know, in the New Testament, I would say 
what's going on here is, you know, we also have to remember that when these documents were written, the Christian church was Jewish and Gentile. Right, right. And they were being persecuted. Right. Primarily by the Jewish synagogue throughout the Mediterranean world. Right. So, you know, the primary opponents of the Christians, you know, in, in, the early, in the first century, the Romans weren't the big threat. The Romans, you know, still continue to have this sort of, you know, uh, we're, we're not really going to. They were who they were. I mean, we're, well, we're yeah, not really going to. kind of a sect. Yeah, um, yeah. They, they saw them as a sect of Judaism, yeah. and this was an intra-Jewish debate, and right. they were, really weren't going to get involved in that unless, you know, it was the only way they could keep the peace. Right. You know, and that was kind of consistently. Right. The way the Romans responded to them, they just kind of ignored them uh, until they couldn't. Right. But but the really the, the you know the story that the New Testament tells is that the, the real opponents of the Christians were were the Jewish people uh, and you know that the Christians were being persecuted. So I think it's important for us to see that distinction that the literature of the New Testament was written right under persecution. Right. They were the ones who were the victims of persecution at the hands of the Jewish majority in a lot of places. Right. So, so you know, to, to call it anti-Semitism, you know, I think to some extent there, there was some kind of almost um, self-defense going on here that, or, or just simply trying to point out, um, you know, that their, that their cause was right. Then they had, they had good reasons for their cause and for their faith in Jesus and, and for the fact that they did not submit to the Jewish religious leaders. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it, it was really more, like you say, a, more of a historical dynamic of right. these, these, these people who had been in power and, you know, they kind of allowed that power to corrupt. And so, um, it's not that they were Jewish or 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 Persian or Egyptian. It was just that they were corrupt and they had gone against God's ways. That was the main. That was the main mm-hmm. point that the New Testament stressed about the Jewish religious leaders right. was that right. you know they claimed to represent God, but they consistently um, opposed God's clear directions uh, in in scripture and you know right. when jesus came as the agent of god's kingdom you know they obviously rejected him as a threat right. to their own power so so yeah it's it, again as i've said before the dynamic is really one more of inter-jewish dialogue it's a little bit more like the analogy of jeremiah right uh criticizing the jewish king Right. And being imprisoned for it, right? You know, and and so that it's it's inter-Jewish dialogue that's going on to some extent, and to some I, extent I, yes. it's the yeah. ch- it's the early church being under persecution and trying to to um, I guess make their case, right? And this is all, I, I hope this is all great background, but the reality is, I think we have to be really careful when we bring this into our contemporary church, and I got caught the other day um, in a sermon where I was using this biblical language and somebody said, you can't just pull out the Jews. And I thought, oh, I should have contextualized that mm-hmm. better because for maybe a visitor at our church, right? they're going to hear it as an anti-Semitic comment when it really wasn't, when I'm kind of referencing the situation of yep. the ancient world. Yep. Yep. And, and I thought, oh, I... I got I didn't I wasn't careful enough and I think it's really easy to pull that language and use it but not realize that modern ears are going to hear it differently they surely are and and we got to make sure that like what I didn't do you have to make sure we don't do that so what do you suggest well how how would you how would you how do you do it well and so for me I, I think I might I might talk about how you know Luke wants to stress that he was innocent and basically, he became the victim of the powers that be mm-hmm. of that time. Mm-hmm. Because to, truly, I mean, while Luke indicates that the Jewish religious leaders were the primary, re, primarily driving force in, in seeking Jesus' death, mm-hmm. um, as, you, as you pointed out, Pilate is not innocent. You know, Pilate right. is, he has his own self-interest here, his own mm-hmm. selfish interest here, right. as does Herod. And, you know, the Roman soldiers, they can say, well, we're only doing what we're ordered to do. But, you know, we all know that that's not Mm -hmm. an adequate defense Mm -hmm. against something that's 
patently right. immoral. Right. And and so, you know, even the fact that this centurion remarks that this was an innocent man, you know, uh, I think I think the point that we're meant to come away with is to see that Jesus is innocent of any any wrongdoing. Um, he does not deserve to die. In fact, in, in, in what he's doing, there's kind of a double irony here. Mm-hmm. Because on the one hand, the Jewish leaders, by seeking Jesus' death, are opposing what God is doing in and through Jesus. But on the other hand, by seeking Jesus' death, they're also fulfilling what God had intended for Jesus to accomplish right, on behalf right, right. not only of the Jewish people but also for the whole world. The whole world, exactly. <laughs> so, so there's a kind of a double irony there that 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 makes it also tricky, and and so perhaps the language of, of just the fact that Jesus was innocent. I think I think the focus for me here is more on Jesus' innocence, on his faithfulness to God and faith in God to the very end mm-hmm. that enabled him to do this. And, and, and I love, I mean, to me, that, that prayer, into your hands I commend my right, spirit. Right. I mean, it's from Psalm 31.5, and, and the Hebrew word is nephesh. Mm-hmm. So you, you could see this as not a dying prayer. Right. but a prayer for living right. into your right. hands. I commend my life. And in fact, I use that prayer that way. I pray mm-hmm. it on an almost daily basis into your hands. Right. I commend my life. Right. And, and, and so, but this is, this is the way in which Jesus dies with that prayer into your hands. I commend my life into, into God's hands. And, and that's the way Jesus lived. Right. You know, right. the way he lived was the way he died yeah. in faithfulness to and empowered by faith in God. And right. so, right. You know, I think that's the thing to focus on here. And, and, and you know, if we want to mention the, the role of the others, perhaps we, we characterize it very carefully. If we, if we talk about the responsibility of the Jewish leaders, I think we have to bring in some kind of, 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 of um, explanatory parenthesis that, you know, look, folks, there have been centuries of anti-Semitism right. that colors the right. way we read this, and we should not read this, this that way. Right. I think we right. can give some I sort of a, a clarifying statement. I think you could statement. pull out, I, I think you could pick, pull, even pull out some of the trigger words pretty easily. You could say something like, um, the leaders of the, um, the Sanhedrin, or the leaders of the, so they're, the, the word Jewish just right. kind of gets dropped. Now, maybe that's not fair, but I think you can do that. Well, people and as pick I said, up on trigger words. As I said, I think you could you could you could talk about the powers that be. I like in that, that too. The powers that be at that time, because the you leadership mean it was, in Jerusalem might be another way might to say be, it. Yeah, um, something that's. A I little, mean, it's it's pretty apparent he's just as much at the mercy of Pilate and Herod as he yeah, is of anybody yeah, else. I think so. Uh, yeah, or just reminding them that it's everybody. That it's the. You know the, the Romans have their hands in it as well. Surely, surely. Um, it was not just it was not just the the Jewish leaders yeah, who were, who, yeah. who were. But I I do think based on my experience, it's important to have our ears really really open for what we say, even if we're pulling that language right out of the Bible, mm-hmm. um, without con- without enough context. Truly, truly, yeah. And, and I to me, I think as I as I come away in and try to sum up this passage in my own mind. You know, what I see is not only Jesus' innocence and Jesus' faithfulness to and faith in God, but, um, you know, I also see, um, you know, um, it's like one of the reformers mentioned, you know, the things that Jesus says from the cross are are amazing. You know, mm-hmm. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Right. Uh, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And, you know, Father, into your hands I commit, commend right, my spirit. Right. You know, this is, this is, um, and I think this is, this is Luke's version of Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. that Jesus is the one who um, remains faithful to God and is empowered by his faith right. in God from beginning to end. Right, right. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.